Are you struggling to keep your head above water during these uncertain times? Does life seem overwhelming to you right now? Well, welcome to the Refusing to Drown podcast, where there is always a spot on shore for you. This podcast is about overcoming adversity and addiction, finding the inner strength that is within all of us, healing old wounds, and allowing our own consciousness to be our guide. I'm your host, Tarasyn Dupuy, and I've been refusing to drown for eight years. In the first two episodes, I illustrated what life was like growing up as a highly sensitive human, how my immediate onset of addiction nearly destroyed my life, and how appearing on Shark Tank was a game changer for me, which catapulted me into my true bottom. In this episode, I'm starting my recovery journey. And oh, what a journey it has been. Which, by the way, continues to unfold in the most interesting and life-altering ways. So sit down, strap in, and get ready as I take you on this refusing to drown journey with me. Well, here it is, the beginning of my recovery story. I wish that I could tell you that I walked back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous after hitting a deplorable bottom and lived happily ever after. But my bottom did not slingshot me back into AA. If you listen to episode two, alcohol quit working for me and my life, but I couldn't stop. I hated myself because I could not quit drinking. My life was at least financially on the upswing. I'd went back to work for the company that I had founded, built, and gave away like an idiot. I went to work for the man who consciously and intentionally bankrupt me to get what he wanted. Yeah, I did that. I was desperate. I thought I would never be anything if I was not associated with fuzzy buns diapers. I thought that's all I could ever do, or do well anyway. But how well was I really doing it? And I wanted it back, and he promised I could have it back one day, if I worked hard enough. So, I would settle for a salary and a chance to make things right again. I mean... I was nearly penniless, and my parents were paying my rent and buying me cheap boxed wine. I was so broke, all I could afford was a 32-ounce Miller High Life from the gas station for a buck thirty. I would pour it into glasses after getting home, salt the rim, and throw a lemon in it and call it a Corona. <laughs> Whatever. It worked for me. Quite humiliating for a 45-year-old former baller with two children at home to support. So, I was grateful to have a job. At least I could buy better-than-gas-station booze. Barely. On the morning of August 9th, 2015, I walked back into AA for the third time. I knew what to expect, and I always loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I just loved alcohol more. I immediately began getting numbers, going to meetings, making friends, and feeling better. But not drinking was not easy. I did 
most of the things that they tell you to do in AA. I got a sponsor. I kind of read the big book. I may have worked a step. Most certainly step one, because I knew I was powerless over alcohol for a long time. Seeing that my life was unmanageable, that took work. You're probably thinking, have you listened to your podcast? Ain't nothing about your life was manageable. Yes, I see that now. Addiction has a way of warping your mind, telling you everything is okay, that it's normal to feel so low. Here, have a drink. It'll make it all better. That is a big, fat, fucking lie. That's what that is. And it was not my intention when I got sober to stop smoking pot. I rationalized my medicinal use and kept on going. At four months in, which seemed to be the longest four months of my life of not drinking, I started getting a little bit squirrely. I started not wanting to go to that place with those people an excuse after excuse to go back to drinking. It felt like the dark forces of the universe were pulling at me. I could feel the noose slowly tightening around my neck, and the neon lights from the bars that are on every street corner saying, We saved a seat for you. Come back. Anytime. My addiction was trying to suck away the little bit of light I had managed to let in, even if it was just through a crack in my alcoholic wall. This is my third time in AA. Relapse is obviously something I'm well-schooled in. It really does sneak up on you. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. One night, bored with my new life of sober living, I went out by myself in New Orleans to go swing dancing and to dinner. I'm an introvert, so doing things alone has always been a good thing for me. I prefer it, actually. During my sushi dinner that I had at the bar, I asked to smell the Chardonnay. Bye, Felicia! Down the hatch it went. And I felt like I was home. I felt like an old friend had just sat on the chair next to me and said, Good to see you. I missed you. The warm wash of dry white wine went down my throat, and in an instant, I was back to being that girl. The girl who was flirting with the guy at the other end of the bar, the girl with the big, obnoxious mouth, the girl that was not uncomfortable in her own skin, and the one that was likely getting laid by someone under 30 that night. Before the liquid oblivion could hit my stomach, I changed. The psychic shift happened. So, fuck it. I called my friend who was my former drinking buddy and, ironically, now business partner, and said, Where you at? I'm coming. And I went find her at the dive bar that was in our neighborhood. It was like we didn't miss a beat. Of course, there was a person who I will not call names, and I will not use derogatory remarks to refer to as, who smelled my desperation and disease 
and gravitated towards me like a moth to a flame. I was not interested. I was there for one reason and one reason only, to get drunk. But he would not let up. I found him somewhat repulsive as he was trying to hit on my friend a few days before. I blew him off, and he tried harder. He said he wanted to take me out on a date, to which I replied, Dude, I'm an alcoholic on a relapse, and I'm going back to AA tomorrow, you dig? Why do you want to go on a date with me? He did not seem all that phased. I'm not sure how he got my number. I likely gave it to him before exiting the bar at 4 a.m. with a schoolteacher in as bad of shape as I was. Thankfully, that guy lived around the corner, and I still got lost on the way home. The whole next day, this guy texted asking for this damn date. I did go back to an AA meeting, but conveniently, they didn't give out slip chips. So, I decided I had another free day to drink. The sobriety vacation window was open, and I was going to make the most of it. Annoyed with this guy that was not taking my no for an answer, I agreed to the date. And what a date it was. I ordered all the expensive wine, champagne, dinner, and after-dinner drinks. I mean, hello? I hadn't had a drink in four months. I had time to make up for. I then went back to his house, of course, fucked him silly, then puked red wine in his bathroom and demanded to be taken home. I just wanted to smell the Chardonnay. The next morning, I was still throwing up. It had found me. The gift of desperation. I think I was throwing up more out of disgust with myself than the actual alcohol. I called my AA sponsor from 20 years prior, who I knew would always be there for me when I called, and I just sobbed. I was powerless. And what was worse? I realized that I was a sex addict, and I had a real problem with that too. Alcoholic seemed to be so much more socially acceptable. The other was riddled with shame and a void as deep as pure blackness. I felt dead. Dead on the inside. I didn't have a solution. I was afraid. And I knew I could not do things my way. Not anymore. My sponsor told me how good I sounded. Good? I said. Yeah, she said. Sounds like you're finally getting honest, Harrison. Mind you, this woman has known me since I got sober when I was 19. She has listened to much of my self-willed bullshit over the years. Denial, deference, lack of ownership for my actions, an insane need to control any and all situations, including my alcoholism and recovery. I surrender. I surrender. I cannot manage this anymore. I'm ready to try something different. That same day, someone met me at a coffee shop at the bequest of my sponsor to read to me. 
They read from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The doctor's opinion. It's an allergy, it says. The phenomenon of craving kicks in the minute you take that first sip. And you just can't stop. Oh, the faulty off button, I thought. I never had an off button. That week, I attended a meeting of old-timers in the program. Someone grabbed me that knew I had just relapsed and put me to work making coffee at the meeting every Monday. I didn't know how to make coffee. I could run a multi-million dollar business, but I could not, at that time, make coffee. It took me six months of Mondays, every week, on time, to learn how to effectively make the coffee for 50 people. But you know what? I stayed sober. This go-round, I decided to let go of the pot, too. Because, let's face it, if I'm being honest, I was not using it medicinally. I was using it as an escape from my pain. Pain I would have to look at, excavate, and work through that I had been putting off my entire life. In my first year of sobriety, I peeled back the first few layers of the onion. It smelled terrible. (laughs) I stopped peeling. I was working the steps as best as I could. I was surrendering my life and my will daily to a power I still had no clue about, not anymore, and I was asking for help, something alcoholics really have a hard time with. I was building my sober network. I was doing the deal. And alcohol was losing its appeal. I didn't think about it much anymore. And I was really kind of starting to enjoy life. Things were looking brighter. I could feel a shift changing in my consciousness. I was enjoying things that I would have never done while I was drinking. And at nine months, I thought dating would be a good idea. It was not. I discovered I was still a very easy prey for sexual predators. And New Orleans is full of them. I was sober, but I was still acting out sexually. And one demoralizing act led to the next one. I can remember hitting my first year milestone thinking, I should feel better than I did. I was, as they say, restless, irritable, and discontent. I hated what I was doing professionally. I was starting to see how toxic that situation was. And I was starting to experience all kinds of physical pain. Shit! I thought you were supposed to get healthier when you stopped drinking? I was losing hope that I could ever heal from sexual trauma. I felt hopeless. At 14 months, I smoked pot at a bachelorette party and convinced myself I had relapsed. Emotionally, I kind of had. But I didn't drink. I didn't want to. Then, the hypercritical, super-perfectionistic, internal sadist kept talking. You failed, you're shit, you're a fraud. Everyone else has perfect sobriety. You don't. My sponsor that I was working with fired me due to her lack of feeling she could help me. 
I got another one right away. I really didn't want to drink. My new sponsor said to not consider it a relapse and not pick up another damn chip for that because it was a pattern for me. I swore she was pulling a Jedi mind trick on me, but she wanted to get to the root of why I kept repeating the same patterns of self-sabotage. Now, I did want to restart my sobriety date because I'm headstrong that way. But no way in hell was I doing that without taking a drink. And I really didn't want to. I was on the phone with someone from AA in the parking lot of the bar prior to walking in. Fuck it again. The voices in my head would win. We call that the shitty committee. I walked in, sat down at the bar, and immediately felt like, I didn't belong there. I ordered a nice, dark, chocolatey craft beer. Didn't taste good. My stomach hurt. I ordered another old favorite. Sucked. I ordered cheap bubbles. I used to be a fan of bubbles. Nope. I'm going home. This sucks. They say a psychic change is necessary for someone to stay sober for the obsession for alcohol to leave. Well, it did. That was the last time I put alcohol in my body. And that is a freaking Christmas miracle. Something must have worked during those 14 months of showing up, not drinking, being of service, connecting with good people, sharing my pain and my triumphs with others, and surrendering to a power I didn't understand every day. Because I would have never imagined I could put alcohol in my mouth and want to spit it out. I couldn't fathom it not tasting good to me. Miracles, man. Miracles. I started doing things differently from this point on. My new sponsor and I worked the steps in a whole different way. We read together, worked together, and I started actually feeling better. My inventory of myself showed patterns that I was now willing to see, and more importantly, willing to change. And sharing the most shameful parts of myself with another person softened the power those things had over me. In 2017, Two years after working my butt off, I felt the call to go to Ireland. I'd been planning to go for about 10 years, and I wanted to go alone. Being adopted, I never knew what my biological heritage was, but I suspected strongly it was Irish. I was a redhead, had freckles, I was feisty as fuck, and I was a chronic alcoholic. Irish! Once I found my maternal birth family, I got confirmation on that. Finally. I knew. But I could feel it in my bones. Hell, the Irish were telling me how Irish I was. That was confirmation enough. But on that trip, I found a piece of myself I had never known. I am convinced that God lives in Ireland. I felt it everywhere. This was a very spiritual trip for me. A vision quest, if you will. I wasn't sure what I was seeking, 
but I think it looked like healing. The people that I stayed with my first night held a gathering of Irish musicians in my honor. They played Americana music and we all sang. They drank. I did not. I had gone to an AA meeting just prior to prepare myself for a real Irish party. It was amazing. Something out of a storybook, but not as amazing as it was at 2 a.m. when they started singing Irish folk tunes to me in harmony. I swear, I think I died and went to heaven right there. One of the men that was playing listened to a song I had written, which I played on the ukulele. He said in his thick Irish accent, which I will not even try to do, he says, Terrison, you're a folk singer. You need to go home, learn how to play the guitar, and sing. And that's exactly what I did. I had recently learned how to play ukulele as a means of having a sober way of soothing myself. Without even trying, I wrote a song. I needed something to do to replace all of my addictive coping mechanisms I had relied on for, oh, let's see, 35 years? I had hoped for a guitar-playing boyfriend for a while so I could sing, But that didn't appear. I mean, they appeared. They just weren't my boyfriend and didn't want to play music with me. So, I did it myself. I'm still a pretty shit guitar player, but it brings me much joy to write and sing my own music. This trip to Ireland alone would be the first of many mystical experiences I would have as I continued on my journey in recovery. While alcohol was losing its appeal... My attachment to men and falling into the hole of love and sex addiction would take me a painfully long time to reconcile. That shitstorm made quitting drinking look like a walk in the park. And it followed me to Ireland, too. I found myself alone on a beach one day with about ten goats. And I just wailed. I cried so loud. I hadn't cried in years, and it all came spilling out on that beach. Just me, God, and the goats. I could feel that longing and that emptiness in my heart, a loneliness, all of my brokenness. Even though I could feel spirit around me, I felt that it had abandoned me. I remember asking, Why did you create me with so much love inside of me and no one to share it with? It felt so unfair. I cried even more. I went to every church, holy well, and every mystical site I could find in search of something that would fix this brokenness inside of me. After being jilted in Ireland, cast aside, and used again, by some guy I found on Tinder that broke my heart, something I fully take responsibility for, I hit my knees and surrendered. Like, alcohol? I knew this was bigger than me. And something removed my desire to drink. So maybe, just maybe, it would work on other things too. I had had enough. I could not keep letting myself be abused. And I was doing it to myself. That was an awakening right there. Ireland told me it was time to go home. 
and I went back a changed person. But not without attracting one Irish man who would become quite smitten with me. But he didn't look like Colin Farrell, so I wasn't all that interested. When I returned home, I started making meditation a part of my life again. And, like magic, things started happening out of the blue. People would call me and say, Hey, thought of you. We're starting a new 12-step group for trauma survivors. Want to come? Or, hey, there's a great free resource for trauma survivors. Or, hey, Terrison, here's your sign. But change does not happen without effort. I couldn't meditate my attachment to self-abuse away or sit in meetings and wish it away. I had to start doing things differently. So you know what I started doing? Saying no. No, I don't want to have sex with you. No, I don't like that. No, you can't come over and get in my bed after leaving your girlfriend's house. No, I don't want another line item on my I'm trying to unfuck my life inventory list. Block, delete, unfriend, sayonara. No. I said it, and I said it often. And the miraculous happened. I think I started to see something that looked a little bit like self-respect. My energy was changing. I was feeling better about myself. I was feeling stronger. I even wrote a song called, I Don't Want to Fuck You, which was a direct result of men not wanting to hear my no. Then I put it on Facebook and tagged every guy I'd ever slept with. I was experiencing some heavy PTSD. I was always so afraid of the healing process from sexual trauma. Would it hurt? Would I have to go back there? Would I have to recount things that I don't even remember well? I really didn't want to do that. I was afraid of healing. What would my life look like if I wasn't obsessed with some guy or didn't have someone to hook up with? Would I be alone forever if I stopped doing those things? Who would want me? The question I should have been asking was, what would life look like if I respected myself? If I loved myself? If I was okay with being alone? I could not imagine that in my wildest dreams. It turned out that healing would not be painful at all. The real pain was living through it. The even worse pain was living with the effects of it as long as I had. Saying no as a first step towards healing was not painful at all. It was freedom. It was empowerment. It felt amazing. I saw the light on the other side of the trauma tunnel, maybe for the first time. In, uh, let me check, ever. I started attending a group at the local rape crisis center, which was trauma-focused. Being someone with a library of self-help books on the shelf, only 25% of them actually read, I thought I was an expert on healing and trauma. I was not. I had a lot to learn. And I was open-minded and willing to listen. Maybe something did happen to me on that beach in Ireland. 
I started understanding why I reacted to life the way I did, why it was so incredibly easy for people to take things from me, to manipulate me, and why I kept getting on the same train of abuse, degradation, and humiliation over and over again. My life was starting to make sense. And you know what else? I started placing blame where it belonged, on the abusers. I had heaped on so much self-abuse, self-hatred, and self-blame that it was eating me up from the inside out. Of course, I wanted to numb out. That shit hurts. But enough was enough. I stopped blaming myself for the failure of my business. That was a really big deal. I didn't drink it away. I was just doing life the best I knew how. And it wasn't very good due to trauma. I had been living in a state of PTSD, likely my entire life, full of triggers, misfires, and poorly programmed decision-making. I started being kinder and gentler with myself, something I will admit I still struggle with to this day. But I did it. I started trying to protect that part of me that didn't know how to protect herself. I had to be my own best parent. I had to re-parent myself. I didn't always get it right, but I was going in the right direction. And I started learning and implementing new ways of operating in this world. Setting healthy boundaries. Uh, boundaries. What were those? (laughs) And I changed some more. I got so good at setting boundaries, refusing to take abuse, and asking for my needs to be met, I actually tried doing that in my shit work situation. I was being devalued, overworked, underappreciated, underpaid, and psychologically manipulated. Finally, I could see it. I was no longer naive. I was no longer asleep at the wheel. I had learned a thing or two in that trauma group. After asking for an appropriate marketing budget and more support in my company, I was basically running for someone else, thinking that it was mine. I was told that I was no longer needed discarded, and I was so freaking happy. Standing up for myself against the big bad man was worth losing my job over. I felt freedom knocking on my door. I had some money saved from working two jobs for a year and a legal settlement I had been fighting for seven years, which was about to pay out. I could afford to be unemployed for a while. Seems something had my back in a cosmic sort of a way. And I wasn't fearful. I was thankful. But I had no idea what I was going to do next. I figured I would just take some time and go back to Ireland and stay with friends I had made there. But that's not the direction I was called at all. No, no, no. I heard a voice saying, Come take a trip with me through the desert, in June, in the heat, by yourself in a tent. (laughs) Who was I to say no? What I would find in the desert would rock my frickin' world and change me forever. 
So, subscribe to this podcast and find out what that would be. If you've enjoyed this episode of Refusing to Drown, please subscribe, like, and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love for you to share this podcast with friends and family members or other survivors needing a lifeline. And if you'd like to support this podcast, as well as my journey to reach more people with my story, head on over to refusingtodrown.com, where you can buy inspirational apparel to help spread the love or book an intuitive coaching session with yours truly so I can help you swim a little bit closer to shore. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Tarasyn Dupuy, and until next time, just keep on swimming.